This is no ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at events and trends that are moving the market, shaping the economy, and I guess changing the game. I'm Jeremy Maggs. A very warm welcome to you. Now, despite the continuing ravages of COVID-19, which South Africans are experiencing more acutely than most right now, there is absolutely no question that economies around the world are bouncing back from lockdown lows. And South Africa, adjusted alert level four notwithstanding, is no exception. With big players like China, Europe and the United States now open for business, demand for goods and raw materials is growing. So much so that suppliers and the various arteries they use to get their wares to market are struggling to keep up. So to understand why this has big implications for everything from shortages of silicon chips to the price of eggs in China, I'll be in conversation with Dennis Hobson, Logistics and Pricing Analyst at Investec for Business. And then in keeping with the theme of growth, today's burning question is a very simple one, but I think has probably got a more complex answer. After years of economic stagnation, rampant corruption and shattered business confidence, here's the question. Is South Africa finally starting to turn a corner? David Gracie, Head of Foreign Exchange and Fixed Income Trading at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking is going to wade in and answer that for us. But first up, Investec Chief Economist Annabel Bishop about the oft-unsung wingman of economic recovery, so-called expansionary monetary policy. Central banks the world over, including here in South Africa, have done their best to stimulate growth. But here's the question. How effective have they been? And what are the hidden downsides to pumping money into lackluster economies? So, Annabelle, a very warm welcome to you. Welcome to uh, No Ordinary Wednesday. Now, I want to start off with a big global picture, if we can. World Bank saying recently the uh, planet is poised to stage its most robust post-recession recovery in 80 years. Goodness gracious. <laughs> That's quite a statement. What's your view? Absolutely, you know, and I think perhaps it's, uh, that's what uh, the United States is expected to stage. And, you know, really just having a look, the IMF looking at the latest um, assessment doing its country review, the United States is bringing in a GDP growth rate of 7% this year. So that's this phenomenal figure that we're talking about. But uh, to pull it forwards, Jeremy, 4.9% next year. And I mean, that's incredible, given that they didn't contract by 7% last year like we did. They contracted by a huge amount less, you know, closer to 3.5%. So I think, you know, this is a key point, but perhaps a caveat. There's going to be a lot of differentiation on an individual country basis, of course, individual sector basis as well. And this unevenness really comes through both in terms of where countries are with their vaccination rates and rollouts, which countries are more heavily influenced by, um, well, certainly the COVID-19 Delta variant and Delta Plus variant at the moment, but of course, other variants are coming through as well. But also, of course, what is happening in their economies, their inflation environments and of course the interest rate environments so yes on a global basis we do have this phenomenal and positive picture but on an individual country basis of course there is um you know patchiness obviously annabelle we're going to thread this through to south africa in just a moment but as far as the big global outlook is concerned what is driving it is it just deliberate well-planned expansionary monetary policy I suppose a number of factors, Jeremy, that we're seeing, you know, pent up demand is absolutely key. And of course, we're seeing that coming through in the pressure 
on manufacturing supply chains, but in turn, that's also as well putting pressure on supply of raw materials, and that in turn, of course, drives up prices, strong positive market sentiment, and yes, that does have its fundamental basis in the good monetary policy support measures that were brought in previously, but you know, you may well ask, well, you know, why is it persisting? Why is it continuing? And of course, again, turning back to the United States, this huge fiscal expenditure plan being brought in by the Biden government, um, massive amount of money spent over the next decade or so, focusing, yes, on infrastructure investment, of course, even delving down into areas like electricity, water, transport, um, telecommunications, and of course, you know, things that Africa sorely needs as well. But of course, also looking at education, research, childcare, checks to households. So a very, very positive outlook for the United States. And I think, you know, these types of strong fiscal policy measures, and let's not forget that the Eurozone as well, also put in place a lot of strong fiscal stimulus, do yield these types of results, particularly when they are stretched out, as um, what has been known as the Biden plan certainly is um, seemed to be over the, over the next several years. Of course, timings and exact figures are not specific yet, but it is an environment as well, I think, and we can't get away from this, where people don't want to miss out. You know, people feel as well that there's going to be strong growth coming down the line, that there's going to be um, opportunity for strong investment. We're already seeing it in price pressure on houses around the world globally. And I think that also is driving this really positive um, upward momentum we've got in sentiment. And I think it's, it's touching many sectors. So you talk about positive upward momentum, but if you have deliberate monetary policy, as you've just outlined. Annabel, is this not treating the symptoms rather than the cause? Can sustained, manageable economic growth be conjured up just with monetary policy, or is there more to it? Well, I think, you know, monetary policy is probably not the flywheel at the moment. In fact, if anything, they're going to be rolling it back. And of course, that talks to the normalization that's anticipated in the United States and other um, key areas as well around the globe. Certainly a tapering quantitative easing. And of course, we even had a foretaste of that recently when we, of course, saw the FOMC members raise their dot plot projections for their future interest rate expectations. So I would say probably not. I'd say that we've actually moved on to a fiscal expenditure, fiscal stimulus phase. Um, We've really, of course, had quite a lot from many nations, but perhaps more fiscal stimulus coming down the line. And perhaps that's where the um, intent really is behind the U.S. plan, and that's to bring it in on a broad-based or inclusive basis for economic recovery, trying to cover all areas or income groups, particularly focusing, however, on low-income groups and really trying to improve equality. And I think, you know, that's something which can actually engender sustainability in an economic recovery. That is, of course, if they obviously do go ahead with this plan and obviously get all the necessary support that they need. Look, we're quite positive about the United States. I think perhaps there's some areas we're less positive in, but the bottom line is that I think everyone is just psychologically sick of the COVID-19 impact, the collapse of last year. People just want to look forward to better times. And, you know, we are seeing a massive rush of fixed investment, certainly expected globally. And that's, of course, in the private sector, not just from government as well. And all of this really, I think, pulls us forwards into, if it obviously transpires, yes, a more sustainable recovery, as you said, because obviously fixed investment does tend to have, yes, a positive impact on productivity and job creation, but of course also on incomes and sustainability or durability of economic recovery as well. Now I want to funnel this down to South Africa. Um, What are the fundamentals looking like for the next uh, three months? What is your 
outlook looking like? And particularly, Annabelle, factor into that the, the third wave that we've already discussed and how that is either impacting or could impact on your outlook and obviously our prospects. Yes, Jamie. So, so, you know, we have got our economic growth forecast around about 43 4.5% for this year. I suppose there are some who have a more optimistic outlook and looking towards the 5% mark, if not more. But we do factor in, as you said, both this third wave and a potential fourth wave towards the end of this year, fifth wave coming in, you know, next year as well. We, we don't have a high degree of optimism at all on South Africa's vaccine rollout. You know, we may be at about 100,000 a day, but government not even doing vaccinations over the weekends. I mean, either we're in an absolute crisis or we're not. People talk about a wartime effort, and I think this really is, you know, quite disappointing. And of course, the fact that we find ourselves vulnerable to new variants, such as this Delta Plus variant, Delta variant coming through. Is government really on the right path, this vaccination drive? I think this is something which brings in a bit of weakness to our economic outlook. So we're comfortable with 4.5% growth. And of course, obviously, you know, by that we mean that there, there probably will be these on and off lockdown measures throughout the year and into next year as well. We're in a light level four, which is nothing like last year's level four. But nevertheless, it's disincentivizing, yes, to business sentiment that we are taking such a slow pace of vaccination rollout when many economies, advanced economies are expected to be finished um, in a few months time, but many emerging market economies as well. And also the fact that, you know, we are going to be going up and down with this uncertainty, more waves of COVID, more lockdowns. And of course, you know, the real impact coming on the hospitality sectors, it's concerning because a lot of low income earners obviously do work as, um, in these areas. And you saw that coming through from the consumer confidence figures recently that we actually saw a real smack happening in the confidence of the low-income earners. And then we pull ourselves through towards the elections ta oh, supposedly taking place towards the end of this year. So I would say there's a lot of uncertainty in the system. We we're probably comfortable around 4.5% at the moment. So a lot of uncertainty, but I'm also hearing that this could be tempered with elements of optimism if we accelerate and get the vaccine process right. Oh, yes, Jeremy. I think you and I are aligned there completely. Look, I do find it upsetting, and I think we all do, that there's been a lot of corruption, um, even in the health department, which government then says, well, the reason it can't roll out vaccinations over the weekends is not enough money to do so. It doesn't have enough vac vaccines. And yet we are seeing this two-step process with prosecutions taking place. You know, with the anti-corruption drive in South Africa, we seem to take two steps forward, one step back. We've yet to actually put anyone of significance um, really into prison, you know, from the state capture years. But the bottom line is it doesn't engender positive sentiment. So two areas where government could be doing a lot better. We know there's lots of difficulties and we, you know, obviously could talk at those at length. An area which we talked about a lot last year, and many years before that, and which now is seeing a bit of improvement, of course, the electricity sector, still capacity constraints, but a sudden leap into 100, 100 megawatt self-generation. You know, that these are really positive steps, and I think government needs to quicken up on the other areas you've mentioned as well, because otherwise South Africa is just going to be left behind from an economic recovery perspective, from an investor sentiment perspective, and we can hardly afford that. We have such crushing levels of unemployment and poverty in this country. But we've got to look for the bright signs when we see them. For instance, a move to open up sections of the railway network to private, uh, to private sector operators. That's good news, isn't it? 
Absolutely. You know, it ties with what I was saying just now about the self-generation as well, the 100 megawatts. And I think this is the point I'm making. There's these real bright spots, you know, spots where we take two steps forward. Um, and, you know, th th that does engender positivity. Also, of course, as well, the partial privatization we're seeing with South African Airways and many other things in the pipeline and actually, of course, happening as well. But, you know, unfortunately for investors, it really needs to be an overall effort. We can't just do well in an area here, an area there, because investors are exposed overall. And we're talking both about foreign investors, but particularly domestic investors. We may be talking about financial markets, markets but we're also talking about fixed investment. Just as the U.S. is expected to accelerate its growth by greater fixed investments economy, so too that is what South Africa really needs. And, of course, we've been seeing on the presidential infrastructure drive a lot of talk around this. We've been seeing, you know, a lot of companies um, paraded for their investment plans. But the bottom line is that we actually need to see a massive upswelling of sentiment so that many corporates in South Africa who do have the cash actually have the ability, to, and here we're talking about, you know, making decisions, to invest in the South African economy, to increase capacity expansion because, and here's the absolute, you know, key, because they believe we are going to go into a strong economic growth and demand environment. And of course, political issues, as we've been facing recently, do bring in the uncertainty element, as do some of the other factors we've mentioned. And I'm going to leave it there. Annabelle Bishop, Investec's Chief Economist, as always, uh, thank you for cutting to the chase so elegantly and efficiently. Appreciate your time. In just a moment, we're going to look at problems that are plaguing global supply chains with Dennis Hobson, logistics and pricing analyst at Investec for Business. But first, a reminder that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday will be dropping every fortnight to make sure that you don't miss it. I invite you to subscribe to Investec Focus Radio South Africa wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. Let's start at the beginning. What has caused these supply chain disruptions? Give me the simple answer. So the onset of COVID-19 and subsequent lockdown restrictions globally was really the start of, of the, the disruptions. Um, this had a ripple effect across mul a multitude of operations that um, enable supply chains to operate efficiently. Your typical disruptions would be labor shortages, port congestion, capacity issues. You would also have extended production lead times. And... More recently, we've had a couple of significant events like the Suez Canal blockage, the COVID outbreak in the Antien port in Shenzhen. We've got continuous port congestion and backlogs in the USA, and then also major disruptions with transshipment hubs like Singapore, where there are significant backlogs. So, Dennis, what does this say, I wonder, as, as we start to look for some sort of solve, what does this say about the resilience then? of supply chains around the world? I mean, has the recovery started to happen? I wouldn't say there's been a recovery. I think there's been an adaptation to the current challenges. Companies, and depending on, on where they are in the world and, and what type of industry they're involved in, they really had to be proactive in, in their thinking, be very decisive in their thinking, and really change the way they operate. So, for example, you might have some importers placing larger orders further in advance in order to try and mitigate some of the lead time delays. So they're actually making provision for a lot more buffer time within their supply chain. So there's been a big shift across various types of supply chains. So in the next couple of months, then, as we see more of this adaptation, um, what can importers expect? I would say that importers could still expect a continuation of the current challenges we're seeing. And 
unless there's any major catastrophe, your demand for air freight and sea freight capacity is likely to increase, which will place further pressure on the carrier's capacity, port congestion, and you're already you know, start seeing rates increase further, and they're currently already at historical highs. The other side you could get is manufacturing delays. They could become more common, which result in orders shipping late and arriving later. This could also put potential cash flow pressures onto to importers. So, Dennis, I want to ask you this question now. What does this mean for importers and particularly retailers and where they sit in the supply chain? So, I'm sure that many of the public have already experienced the availability of stock being in short supply at times. And retailers are facing delayed orders, uh, reduced sales volumes and high import costs, which are putting pressure onto their margins. South African retailers are competing with demand across the globe in terms of the manufacturing capability and capacity of, let's say, Chinese manufacturers. And the risk is that retailers could get their stock late, which will further put pressure onto to their sales. Now, the other side is they could have to discount prices if they receive their orders late as well to avoid stock becoming obsolete. Another possible scenario is that a retailer may need to change from a sea freight order to an air freight order in order to meet certain deadlines or in-store deadlines. Which then again, that increases their lander cost because air freight is a lot more expensive than, than sea freight. On the flip side of this, importers that have been proactive in their supply chain planning have an opportunity to gain market share. You know, if they have the stock available, they can then make the sales and the potential value of that stock could potentially increase in value because they actually have it in store or have it in the warehouse. This could also help increase their, their bottom lines potentially. So then to bring it to a conclusion, as a consumer, what do I need to be concerned about or do I simply have to live with the new normal as you've outlined? The consumer is really going to feel impact when it comes to the cost of goods. And maybe the best way to break it down is let's take e-commerce versus in-store buying. So, for example, with e-commerce, you've already seen retailers struggling with stock availability. So when you order something online and they say it will take five days, it ends up coming in a seven or eight days time. So if you're ordering something for doing some Christmas shopping in advance and a retailer doesn't have their stock, you could miss actually having your Christmas gift in time for, for a loved one. Where it comes to in-store, I've seen a, a few cases where the product's not available on the shelves or there's very limited uh, quantities. And your, your retailer is struggling in the sense of having their stock available. But the, the significance of higher freight rates is really going to start impacting as well. And to give an example of that, if you had to take a 20-foot or 6-meter container shipping from Shanghai to Durban, June last year, that container would cost roughly $6,000. So if you've got, let's say, 20 fridges in that container, it would work out freight rate cost of $50 per fridge. The current rates in June were around $3,800 for the same six-meter container, which then equates to $190 per container. So you can see that the consumer is going to be paying more because the importers can't keep absorbing these costs. It's really putting pressure on their, their bottom lines, and they need to obviously continue making sales and then driving unprofitability. The long and the short of it is consumers could be faced with a shortage of product as well as paying higher prices. That also might put pressure onto the general retail market in the sense of number of sales 
or volume of sales committed because at the end of the day, consumers could have less in their pocket to spend because of the higher item prices for certain commodities as well. And we don't really know when things are going to even out again, do we? That, that's, that's the conundrum. Correct, Jeremy. You know, reading a lot of market updates and also just doing my own analysis, the expectation is that these challenges will remain till at least mid-2022. There's so many factors that, that are playing out at the moment. And one of the biggest ones is available capacity. So the USA is obviously a massive trading partner with China. We know that China is a uh, manufacturing powerhouse. But their imports have actually increased by 8% from January to May this year. And comparing that to the pre-COVID, so 2019 dates. And that demand continues to increase. And with the lack of capacity, especially on the sea freight side, shipping lines can't just manufacture new vessels and put the capacity in. There is an order book of plus minus 3 million 20-foot equivalent units from a new shipbuild perspective. But that's going to take, you know, between two to four years to come into the market. So for the next foreseeable future, we are going to see a lot more disruption taking place. And Dennis Hobson, I appreciate the crisp analysis, logistics and pricing analyst at Investec for Business. And here's a note. Uh, Dennis has just released his latest bi-monthly logistics update. It's entitled Bottlenecks and Backlogs, as we've just been discussing. And it makes sense of supply chain disruption. You can find it on focus.investec.com. Dennis, thank you very much. And finally, it's time for our regular burning question. On every episode of No Ordinary Wednesday, we pick a question about the world of money that's been on our listeners' minds, and we do our very best to answer it. If you've got a question, I invite you to go to investec.com forward slash now. Let me repeat that. That's investec.com forward slash now. And share your question, your conundrum with us. Today's question, I think, is refreshingly upbeat, or perhaps not, depending on the answer. I want to introduce you to David Gracie. He's head of foreign exchange and fixed income at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking. He's going to tackle this for us. David, here's the question. We've seen the wheels of justice turning, however slowly, with the arrest of some key people associated with state capture. We're seeing ESCOM slowly reducing its debt, more electricity solutions on the table to address the ongoing power crisis in the country. Some industries, particularly mining, are strengthening the economy. And we are seeing, I guess, a better-than-expected recovery. So here's the question. Are we seeing the first signs that South Africa is turning the corner? Hi, Jeremy. Thank you. Uh, I guess I, I wish there was a simple answer to that question. I suppose that the best way to start is to say I think we definitely, on a macro basis, we are further along to a solution than we were three or four years ago. You will remember President Ramaphosa in his first year came in with Tumamina, New Dawn, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I guess some of that shine has taken a, a little bit longer than was initially uh, hoped for, but definitely closer to a, a solution, but a hell of a long way to go still. There's still lots on the on our radar that we're concerned about. Uh, you know, you mentioned Eskom as an example. I think they're far from being out of the woods, although they have made some progress and they certainly reduced debt. And we do have independent power producers coming online, but Eskom still has the potential to derail any kind of recovery. I guess the last week's um, political uh, headlines have, have not engendered uh, too much confidence. 
Uh, and then, of course, the state capture that you alluded to, the prosecutions are taking very long to get done. And that's not causing too much uh, confidence or, or creating too much confidence uh, in the economy. And there's still some question marks around that. So it's not a very simplistic answer, I'm afraid. And I guess we can explore each one of those those entities on its own. That's exactly the answer that I was expecting, uh, David, because it's a very complicated subject. But if I can summarize, what I'm hearing then is that rhetoric and slogans that we perhaps got used to uh, a year, two years ago, have now been replaced by a little bit more pragmatism. But what you're concerned about is the pace of implementation. I am concerned about the pace of implementation on two levels. A, on the very simplistic level that it's taking so long. And I guess, you know, certainly with the National Prosecuting Authority, that you can allude to that you can draw conclusions there and say, well, that was as a consequence of the absolute hollowing out of the institution and to replace those skills is taking a very long time. But you might also argue that there's still a reluctance on the part of the National Prosecuting Authority to really get their hands dirty. So the jury's still out on that one, uh, but it's, it's taking a long time. Eskom, we knew was going to take a long time. We always knew with the level of problems that Eskom had, certainly their debt and with uh, their production and trying to generate electricity of the new power plants, and the problems that they experienced there, we knew that that was going to take a long time. But the problem with that is that South Africa is experiencing such a deep economic decline that if Eskom doesn't speed up its reform and its, its generating capacity, that's going to hold back much needed uh, GDP growth. And the downstream implications of that is that we continue to have high unemployment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's taking, it, it's taking a long time and many would say too long, but perhaps, you know, the level of hollowing out that took place under the previous administration uh, is taking longer than, than was initially expected. So in those high towers in Manhattan where the ratings agencies sit, how would they be looking at all of this? Well, you know, we've been, we've been downgraded to such an extent that I don't think there'll be further downgrades. I mean, we've made some progress on our revenue collection front. Uh, I think SARS has done a good job there, and that would have been a big concern for the rating agencies, and maybe that's been arrested for now, and certainly it may hold off further downgrades, but we're already below investment grade, so you know the investors are not really watching us with keen eye. But what it does mean, Jeremy, is that any potential upgrades have just been extended further out and will take longer to come online. David Gracie, thank you very much indeed. Just to remind you, Head of Foreign Exchange and Fixed Income, Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking. And that ends episode four of No Ordinary Wednesday. I invite you again to join us on the 21st of July as we continue our discussion on the business and financial trends that are shaping the world and the stuff that matters to our listeners. It's going to be a cracking lineup once again. So if you haven't subscribed, it really is time to do so. All you need to do is search for Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And so until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the rest of the Focus Radio team. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.